Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Matt, Nick, Justin, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, and Annalise. Thank you for your financial contributions. They are helping us live our best lives, and we are very grateful. If you have got $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do fun stuff like make Pope hats, get famous, pay for mortuary school. What the hell is a Pope hat? Like from the last the last Patreon thing we recorded, oh. we talked about making a Pope hat for as our merch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Pope hat. That's my favorite. Help us make a Pope hat, guys. That's what I've always wanted to do. Did you not? It was, this was your idea. I can't remember. Popats. Popats are great. Popats are great. If you want to help us buy uh, memory classes for Ethan so he can remember his own jokes from last week, you can join our supporters of, over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You can also get access to our Patreon-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk, which we have not recorded yet this week. So we're all going to live in the mystery of what you'll be able to hear on Friday. If you are not in a position to support us financially, there are still ways that you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can share us on the platform of your choice, or you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just keep listening because that is wonderful as well. Mm-hmm. That's what I got. Words of affirmation. Now on to the show. One, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Do you want to talk about your week first? Is there other church stuff? Are there updates since the bats? Not not a whole lot um, of, is going on at the church, although b- before, we, before we got on to record listeners... My office administrator called me to let me know that there were folks, you know, like like folks that should be at the church came over to the church today and discovered that all the doors were unlocked and that like freezers were open and like things were melting. Oh no. And 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 I, and I was like, "Oh, well. Hmm. Sounds like everything I knew was going to happen is happening and there's just way too many keys out and people just show up and do whatever they want." And Colette's like, yeah, that sounds right. And I'm like, okay, well, hopefully people will remember that and uh, maybe we'll change the locks. Oh, well. Yeah. You gotta. That's a, That was one of the big reasons we, so at the church that I served, the first, the church I served the longest, North Carolina, uh, we had somebody who had gotten a key to the church and tried to steal our decades old recording system and sell it. But like, even after that, they did not change all the locks in the church. They just tried to like round up keys. And so that was the part of the motivation behind getting the new doors was to like, not have to change the locks, but get whole new doors on the church and and then like contract out to get the locks changed. And I was like, well, we could have just solved this by changing the locks, friends, but that's okay. So yeah, I, I I'm sorry that happened. Um, they, they, it's not really damaged, just like it looks like some stuff was maybe stolen. It, it possibly. I mean, I, I don't know, and I don't care if I was really honest with you. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't have anything at the church. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe things need to be stolen so that somebody somewhere can, you know, get wise and uh, do what I say we need to do. 
So, whatever. Churches churches need uh, consequences for their their poor management styles. I part of me hears that and is like, yes. And then part of me is like, do I agree with that theologically? And I don't know. <laughs> like, I guess there are always consequences for our actions. So there's kind of no avoiding it. Uh, but, and also like, maybe this will be the kick in the pants. But if it were to be like, somebody came to the church and like, burn down the church oh, like sure. then the conversation shifts from there needs to be consequences for actions to why arson uh and that's right. like finding that line i think is something that's uh is in the realm of like practical theology versus like just the the stuff you talk about in seminary and write on your boom paperwork that that's exactly right that's exactly right i had a good conversation after church this sunday with some different folks like yeah, I get along with at the church that that will sometimes listen to me babble about some of my ideas, and uh, one of the things was uh, there was a congregant there who I was talking with who could not get into the building because she was like three minutes late, and the policy of the church is to lock all the doors, you know, to protect us from the deranged murderers that are out there to kill white Christians, right. and uh, and and she got let in, and and it was I guess not a huge deal. But I just kind of expressed, I was like, this whole practice of locking the church doors, you know, after service starts is what's called security theater. You know, it's made up. It's, it doesn't actually mm. help us. It doesn't keep us safe in any way. It's, it's designed to make us feel better. Um, and, and people are like, well, I mean, it would keep us safe from, you know, from somebody. And I'm like, yeah, from one of those perpetually late, you know, church shooters that show up before that that decide on a whim to walk it on the street and go what should i do today and then they go oh there's a church well maybe i'll kill everybody on the inside of that church and then they go up and they're like oh the doors are locked i missed my chance like like no that's i guess that specific incident we would be protected from that one incident um other than that you know if somebody really wants to shoot us up they'll just they'll just do that or they'll wait for church to be done and then shoot us up then or they'll, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing because like you lock your doors at night or like during the day when you go to work because like a locked door will just discourage thieves that are going around the neighborhood checking to see if doors are locked. Like that's a real thing. Or like you lock the doors to your car because like people do just check to see like what cars are open and if they're open they can take whatever's inside or the car itself. Um, and so like, like that is a real thing that I think is in people's minds, but in the case of somebody who has like planned an attack, there's like, there's really nothing that's going to stop somebody from getting into a space who wants to get into a space. And we really don't like that idea of a lack of control, but, but also like at the same time for schools and school shooters. And, and I think this is probably true in, in the institutions that I've worked at where we have had like school kids in the building, locking the doors creates like a first line of defense, which then limits your casualties. Mm -hmm. it, and like that, like that also makes sense to me. Like that also seems right. But then for a church on like Sunday morning, uh, like I just don't think that the locked door is going to be that much of a deterrent, especially since like there are gigantic windows in churches, you know, right, like right. there is, it's, 
it's difficult because a church is like a very specific situation that is different from your home or your school, even though it sometimes feels like a home or a school. So I, I am both very sympathetic to where they're coming from because I know that they, well, they're a little bit irrationally worried, but like, I know the data that they're working with and it's not unreasonable. It's just that they need to, they need to rethink where they are at in, in their lives in terms of security, because it is a, essentially security theater. I think you're really right with that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, other than that, that's what's going on at the church right now. You know, make it, making it happen. Okay. Making it happen. Anything fun happening in your life, Joe? So this past weekend I went to go visit a friend of mine Sorry, mom, if you're listening to the podcast, I did not come to visit you after I visited my friend and I could have and I didn't. My mom doesn't listen to the podcast, but if you do, I'm sorry. Um, so I visited a friend of mine in North Carolina who has a baby who is now almost six months old and I had not gotten to see this baby yet. Um, uh, and she is one of my friends who have worked at churches and I, we had a lot of conversations I kind of like the conversation we were having with Emily about like what makes a church good to work for and uh, but more like what makes a church toxic and what we kind of look for in church leadership. Mm -hmm. um, but then also like we went out and about around Charlotte and uh, Charlotte is full of uh, the exact type of people that I am most afraid of in the world, which is like rich looking evangelicals who I'm sure are judging me. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and I like, so we, we went to like a really cute little walking mall that was in like a reclaimed mill. Cause there's a million mills in North Carolina that need to be reclaimed. Um, and like, I, it was lovely and fantastic and bougie and I loved it. And it was a weird sensation to just be like, Oh, look at all of the different types of food that are here. And I'm so excited. Um, but there was also just a lot of people that I was like, I could see each and every one of you at church on Sunday and you would be living your best Instagram life. And I would not like, I would just know that I don't belong to this crowd of people. Um, which in, in a weird way, like the amalgamation of all of those conversations together, like stirred up a lot of purity movement bullshit within me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, that I did not. I thought that I was like, this is in my past. I don't have to think about it anymore. I like have really come leaps and bounds away um, to the point that as we were leaving, we had taken the elevator down because they had the baby in the stroller. And so I was holding the door open for another young couple who were going into the elevator with their baby in the stroller and one of the two of them said thanks and I said you're welcome but I only said it to the husband to, to the man of the couple and I only made eye contact with him and I walked away and my mental monologue was like I have tempted him into sin and we are all going to hell now and I have drug us all down into the depths of the lake of fire because I was wayward with my eyes because I did not address the woman of the couple I specifically looked at the man and this is all my fault and everything is awful and terrible and it's like where did this come from <laughs> and and why do why is it still an available option in my mind but like what what i'm kind of finding from this and i i don't know that any of our listeners would have had an experience like this at all in their lives but like if you do find that some toxic theology is just being brought back up in your spirit it might be that it's still just tied to a lot of church hurt still like I, so I've also been listening to back episodes of the podcast and I think I have gotten to like last, I think last March or like right around when we had decided to stop having indoor services at church right around Easter. Mm. Um, 
And it is astounding to hear like how positive and hopeful and upbeat I sound in comparison <laughs> to where we're at right now. Cause I'm like, here, here we have these options. I've had these really good conversations with people. I've had these meaningful moments. I'm like, I'm just talking through everything uh, as if like I'm making a difference. And I like in reflection, like good things happened over the course of my ministry. Right. But I, I am listening to it and I'm just like, all the problems are still there. Um, and and that's part of the reason why I want to talk about Afghanistan in our episode today, because we talked a whole lot about Christian nationalism last year, especially over the summer, mm-hmm. um, and American civil religion. It's kind of just been a theme of, of what we've been trying to think through, I think, because it's just such a big part. It was a really big part of our life in our churches during the Trump administration. And I think that uh, we all kind of breathed the sigh of relief after Inauguration Day and was like, great, we have somebody who's not going to be like exactly in line with the evangelicals and therefore like Christian nationalism is less of a concern from the White House. Um, and then to like... To know that we have gone through that kind of journey where we were very, very deeply concerned with this a year and a half ago, and then to listen to Biden give a speech about uh, after the the bombing at the Kabul airport, and to hear him say that, like, we will not forget, we will not forgive, like, that's mm-hmm. the language that we use when we get into a new war. Uh, and then to also say that, like, the American military have been the people who have answered when the Lord has says, who, who shall I send? And they say, send me. Like I, I was reading a tweet by Jack Jenkins, who is a religion reporter. And he like went through and listed how this has been a really common phrase to be used when our presidents are sending our soldiers off to war. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like, and I, I fully believe it. I fully believe that Democrats and Republicans have both said it. And like, that doesn't make it okay. <laughs> Right. Um, I, I, and I, what I've been, my, my Twitter feed is this really jarring juxtaposition between like people in my feed who hated Trump, but who are, uh, Gen Xers or boomers who are like, uh, you know, I think Biden is really just doing the best that he could possibly have done. And it's like, thank God that Trump wasn't in charge of this. And this is all Trump's fault. And I like, we should really be praising Biden for everything he's saying. And like, yeah, the military is there to answer the call. And then on the other side of it, I have Palestinians and Afghan journalists and people like around the world who are like, but children were, were killed in the drone strike that was in revenge for this just like children have always been killed in the drone strikes that we carry out there are always civilians and it really just shows that you are prioritizing the life of these uh, service members uh, american service members as opposed to the many more people on the ground who live in this country who are dying yeah and and like we have people in our churches, regard, I think regardless of what church you go to and what church you're pastoring, regardless of how liberal or conservative it thinks it is, there is there's somebody in there who thinks, yeah, we should be sending in all of the power of the U.S. military to go take care of these people because when someone attacks you, you take revenge. And that's what we should do. And it's tied up with the whole with Christian nationalism writ large. Um, and so like, <laughs> so it's been really 
it's been a really discombobulating week for me this past week, probably like two weeks, to be honest, um, that just kind of culminated in, in this weird moment on on Saturday. But this like kind of building of like, there are disasters happening all over the world. There is the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which we're re- recording on um, August 30th. So they've just officially, like the, the the last planes have lifted off. We are officially done with the war in Afghanistan, um, despite that the fact that there are hundreds of American civilians still in Afghanistan <laughs> and people right. who work with the U.S. government. Um, yeah, like... I, I I kind of don't know how to how to even begin to think through the world that I'm seeing around me and it's triggering a lot of the um like my brain goes to the world is a terrible place why do terrible things happen and because like the first sin that I was ever presented with was the idea of like sexual sin that terrible things happen because I looked at somebody the wrong way you know is the same logic as like gay people cause hurricanes except reflected inwardly <laughs> and like it's that's interesting isn't it, but isn't it bananas like yeah. I, and i i i spent days being like why do i feel so awful like is it something to do with my body is it this or this or this or this and i really think that like it's anxiety that finds its home in toxic theology that then just like reverberates inside of me but that's that's my psychoanalysis that I should really get a therapist for. But I think that like the anxiety of the world around us is is getting back into us again if it ever left. Um and so I want to like at least talk through one thing that I think we can think through, which is uh the American civil religion or Christian nationalism with regard to the war in Afghanistan. So that's that's my spiel. What do you want to start with? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I find it interesting. I, uh, you know, I, I, so like part of listeners, part of my background, you know, from an academic perspective, like the first subject that I was really interested in in college was uh, civil religion. Like that was something when I first like learned about it in my first sociology of religion class. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like, it's like an answer to things I never, you know, I, I've always wondered about, you know, like you, it's mm-hmm. such a, I think a lot of people who first learn about it, I think kind of feel that way. And so like civil religion is probably something that I've spent most of my like, like thoughtful young adult time, you know, with like thinking through. Yeah. Um, because of that, um, I don't know. Because of that, like, I don't take for granted um, the fact, I don't take for granted that politicians and and lots of folks, public American figures, all, without the American civil religion, there, there would be an entire way of talking about this country that uh, would lose its vitality, like it wouldn't exist anymore. Hmm. Um, that's what I think. And so, now, I'm not saying that's a, a good thing or a bad thing. I just think it's a thing, right? Like, on this podcast, we've talked um, probably around the time that 
you know that you're describing when you when you're listening around around this March of last year. We talked about how kind of American civil religion, you know, can be used for all kinds of things, right? Like, on one hand, we talk about the the kind of dimensions of priests and prophets in American civil religion. That mm-hmm. that part of part of the discourse of American civil religion is there's these kind of priestly discourse, you know, that that is usually centered around American exceptionalism, um, the the uh, uh, sort of ritualism that we pull from, you know, in order to make sense of ourselves as a priestly nation or a chosen nation or or, or whatever. And then there's also prophetic literature, you know, in American civil religion, or prophetic discourse in American civil religion that's usually centered around America kind of not failing to live into their calling or America sort of um, needing to strive to, to, to do a great moral feat. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, both are, you know, kind of live in each other and, and usually, usually uh, folks who think Americans who are ambivalent about American civil religion see the prophetic side of it as being better as being like good and uh, there's a sense in which that's sort of true um martin luther king jr utilizes american civil religion primarily that's actually his primary his primary public persona i i would argue um i think that you can't understand mlk unless you understand him as a christian pastor and theologian i definitely believe that but i think that like 99 percent of his speeches and like work that's that's sort of public is is primarily drawing upon the tradition of american civil religion and is and is not should not be regarded as sort of like an authentically christian witness you know in in the public now like he is a christian and his work in his sort of theological work is often very christian but his sort of public persona and public you know kind of uh, orations I wouldn't say are, and that uh, that poses something of a problem, I think, because you know I think that here, here's why I think this is a problem, Joe. I'm sorry I'm babbling a little, but I don't think I am. Here's why I think this is a problem. I think that we're so used to, um, as left-leaning f- folks, we're so used to hearing the priestly rhetoric from the right. Um, George W. Bush famously, you know, as he was talking through the war in Afghanistan initially, uh, famously invokes priestly civil religious rhetoric constantly. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's just the way he does it. You know, that's how he, that's how he, that's how he gathers almost universal, um, affirmation for the war in Afghanistan, you know, um, Barack Obama, on the other hand, almost almost unilaterally uses prophetic rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. When when talking about when talking about the civil religion of the United States, and from a Christian perspective, what makes this complicated is that both are equally evil. Yeah, you know, it's equally idolatrous um, from a particular Christian point of view. If William Stringfellow were here, he he'd be like both blasphemy. Both disgusting, you know. Both both result right. in, both result in the systematic death of children and women and men. 
um, both both believe that somehow God is this entity that loves America a little bit more than everything else, and uh, both are both are bad. And um, I believe that Trump, and I've said this in the podcast back then, like I think that Trump is Trump's use of American civil religion is so wacky because he sort of does away with both and and sort of creates this new form of like apocalyptic you know civil religion in which god doesn't really seem to be present but but there's this great unveiling of truth like your neighbors are not really americans you know your what you thought was true is not really true what's really happening is the liberal media is is the great beast you know and, and there's there's this real apocalyptic sense and what I find interesting is the pendulum with Biden swings to the right, <laughs> and, and Biden speaks as a as a priestly, yeah. you know, sort of American civil religious thing and motif, right? Um, if if Biden was pulling from a prophetic liter- mode, there there would be a, a different set of biblical scriptures being used. Uh, it probably would not be. It, it probably wouldn't be used as as a t- sort of a revenge rallying cry, and instead something a little more somber, maybe, maybe, maybe a caution to the American people, cautioning us to to look into our better natures and, you know, recognize some some different things. But uh, that's not what's happening. This is full. This is full George W. Bush. <laughs> Which I, which I find interesting that this is, that this is what uh, the left is right now, like the kind of mainstream left in in is is invoking. So those are yeah. some of my thoughts right now. Yeah, I think those are all good thoughts. I like I I I like that you pulled back and was like, this is kind of the framework as we see it because it really did strike me as as Biden using something that George W. Bush might have used, and I, gosh, I. I wonder if there is a level to which that is um, a really thoughtful strategy because um, a a big voting base that is us millennials are people who grew up on the way that George W. Bush used civil religion um, and the, the priestly rhetoric of it. And, and like, even though Obama inspired us, like the first things that we in our political consciousness as it came about after nine 11 is is this like well we are called to go be the people who are bringing democracy to these spaces and who are like defeating the infidels and and all that kind of stuff um which makes it this this specifically christian kind of language um and i yeah i on the other hand i think that that this was is the default language that biden would go to just because of who Biden has been as a politician for all of his career. That being said, he's been he's been against the war in Afghanistan it, during his years in the Obama administration for sure, um, and just really wanted us to end the war and bring everybody home. Um, and I think I think what's most striking about that though is it's not it doesn't especially after this speech where where he talks about. This speech and then other comments that he's made about how, like, the Afghan government and the Afghan military just did not do their job and 
uh, as if they have not been the people who have been dying on the ground the past five, six, seven years, primarily in this war. Um, like it, it doesn't really seem like it's a, I have compassion for the people who are suffering uh, uh, both in America and around the world. It really seems to be like, we shouldn't be there. There's no reason for us to waste our lives and our power on those people over there. And I, and that might be putting some words in his mouth and, and leaning a little bit too hard on the xenophobia. But I, I, but I think there's a little bit of it there, right? I think that there is this, this idea that like, we don't need to be at war right now. Screw what happens to these other people. Um, and, and that's not the, that, that might be something that I would have taken in even just a couple of years ago, maybe even at the beginning of seminary and been like, you know, like it, it's not our responsibility to nation build is something that I would have linked on and then been like, so we should just leave them to die. And, and I don't have, I, I don't have the right answer. The right answer to the war in Afghanistan is to never have started the war in Afghanistan by like in terms of how you fix it now, there's, there's no good way to have done this. And I think that's really true. But at the same time, like, it really is just striking and reminds me like how deep in our consciousness um, a lot of these ideas of like the holiness of war and the um, the righteousness of fighting and giving your life for um, whenever your government calls you up to go and fight, um, how much that's just uh, kind of encoded in, in how I have interacted with the United States and the way that like I have imbibed civil religion. Mm-hmm. It's just really striking and also really disheartening to to see the people who are like Trump is being a uh, Christian nationalist. And so we need to fully condemn Trump. But then who are like, yay, Biden. And there's not a ton of them, but there are enough sure. of them for me to be to be irritated by it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. It is incredibly irritating and and sort of sort of totally out there. I mean. This is war and and soldiers and all of that, you know, military stuff. Like, this is the stuff that truly um, baffles me about boomers. Like, like this is sometimes I, <laughs> we, I've had I've had boomer congregants tell me about how brainwashed my generation is, and I and it's the only time I I flat out laughed out loud and pointed. While I laughed at at boomer congregants and didn't try to like approach it pastorally, I remember you talking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it's just I'm like, you're a boomer. Do you realize how mushy your brain is right now? Like, like you're <laughs> you you have done nothing but imbibe propaganda for seventy years. Like, mm-hmm. like of course I'm brainwashed. We're all brainwashed, but like, give me a break. You know, you you weep when you hear that awful God bless America, God bless the USA song from the 90s. Like you openly weep. Yeah. And it's and it's easily one of the worst songs ever written in my lifetime. You know, it's like like pound for pound, like it's worse than that Toby Keith song about kicking ass for America. That Toby Keith song is more artistic. But like like there and you see this on Facebook, too, even among, you know, kind of liberal, you know, anti-Trump boomers like it's. It's this 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 real kind of emotional response to stuff that you know at the end of the day is 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 sort of a pure bad, 
Mm-hmm. It's sort of a pure bad. Um, here, here's another thing that I've been thinking about, Joe. Um, it's it's incredible how morally stunted all Americans are, <laughs> including us, including us. I feel that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Be, because because we we're given a grammar to work with that that just that just sort of keeps us from thinking you know through things like in a really sophisticated way ultimately um it, it is it, it's almost impossible for us and i include us you and i in this for us to imagine a moral grammar in which we do not understand our country as being responsible i think that's in, really true in some way and i guarantee you France doesn't have that problem. You know, like I guarantee you that there, I don't know why I picked France, but like any country you can name, um, I bet doesn't have the same sort of problem uh, in which we go somehow, somehow we can't imagine a scenario in which uh, an argument could be made that it is our job to build Afghanistan as a democratic nation. Um, yeah, you know, like, like I have a hard time trying to understand, like, like I, I get there, there's a moral uncomfortableness to it when we say, and you just experienced it, right? Like not, not too long ago when you just said it, like, well, you know, it's not really our job to nation build. And then, and then like, I bet you felt a little anxiety in saying that, like, well, yeah. it's kind of is our job. Well, maybe it's not well, but maybe it is like, like I have that same kind of a thing too. Like, and I think that. Um, I, I think that the civil religious nationalistic, you know, all of the stuff that kind of goes into cultivating this American city on a hill, American great, great nation sort of deal. The consequences for that are, um, things like this happen all the time and, and we cannot moralize our way out of it because the sort of fundamental building blocks for our morality are fucked like you know with great power comes great responsibility yeah but the only reason we have that great power (laughs) is because once upon a time we decided to take it right you know it wasn't given to us we just we just seized it for ourselves yeah, but we have it, so we, we need to be responsible. No, we don't. We can just give it up. No, we can't give up the power. Well, why? Well, because what if bad people show up in Afghanistan? B- right. Buddy, friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you see, this the, the circle is the problem, right? Mm-hmm. We have this power, so we're responsible. Yeah, that would be true if we were, if we sprang into existence from nothing this powerful. That would be true. Right. But we didn't. And then that's all sustained by by the sort of civil religious ideology, right? Like mm-hmm. it's sustained by it. Everything everything sort of feeds into it, so that even like, you know, e- even the way we talk about um, the handful of really left wing politicians and activists in our country, even some of that stuff is is infected by it, right? We're such mm-hmm. a great nation. That's why we've got to make sure um, the Everybody has access to health care. Well, but even if we were a shitty nation, we should do that too. 
Well, but we're not. We're a great nation. I mean, okay, but like, yeah, and, we're and, also a shitty nation, <laughs> right? And but you don't score any political points by saying, "Well, yeah, I, you're unless right. you're Trump, you do," because Trump spent a lot of time saying that America is broken and only I yeah, man, it. isn't that fucking crazy? I'll never get it. I'll never wrap my brain around it. I, I, I it, it's amazing. That's why I have. That's why I call what Trump did apocalyptic. Like that mm-hmm. must have been it. Like Trump was able to to create a, a scenario in which he told a truth that was false but he told a truth in a way that made it feel like a secret mm-hmm. you know the secret that we're all thinking is all these brown people make our country worse and because these brown people are here you're in a shitty country and then all the white people are like he's right we are in a shitty country <laughs> right you know <laughs> uh, yeah 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 you laugh because I, I laugh because like it makes me very nervous <laughs> like and I think that there are plenty of people for whom that's a subconscious thing, but it also is really a thing. I don't I, – I, we're going to talk about Hill House in our mini-sode, and I, the reason we are is because I restarted it, listeners, because in, like, the wake of everything, the only thing that, like, my spirit wanted – like, I did not want to watch Ted Lasso and feel something like Bright and Chipper or even, like, Bob's Burgers, which is chipper in its own way. Like, I really wanted to just, like – sit in darkness but self-contained darkness um but but i think that like there is something within and i feel like i have seen this in other places as well but there's something within the the white psyche that like knows horrendous things have happened knows that we have stolen our power and then just like consolidated it and refused to let it go and like that guilt is just comes out in horror in like all of these ways that we find to like torture ourselves and one another like there's like that because we are unwilling to do anything that might provide restitution we end up getting caught in this place of like, we are racked with the problems and the sins of our ancestors and there's no way to process it. There's no way to redeem it. There's nothing to do with it. And so we are just horrified by it. Um, and I, I don't know if that's like the full psychological argument or, or theological argument, but like, that's something that strikes me as really true that like, I, I kind of need to, in moments where, like, the world's brokenness is uh, outside of my control to fix, um, but also just, like, beyond my ability to, like, fully diagnose and deal with, I need something smaller that I can feel this feeling, but in a safe way. Because, um, like, I, I, I just have been horrified over and over these past two weeks, like... It's just been a lot. It's I have a friend who evacuated from New Orleans, Ashley, friend of the pod mm. who was on last year. She's safe. She's in Houston with friends. Good. But like who knows if her students were able to all get out and be where they needed to be. Um and like watching report after report after report of of schools having clusters of COVID where like I have a friend who's a preschool teacher who seven of their 10 classrooms are in quarantine right now because of COVID and COVID exposure. Um, Like, luckily, it's only been teachers that have gotten sick, but some of them have gotten very, very sick. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's just, there are so many things happening in the world that are, like, I just... 
I don't know how to laugh about it. I don't know how to joke about it. And so I feel like horror is, is the place that I need to sit so I can feel with some of this, um, to, to deal with some of this. And, it, and the really tricky part of this is that um, I feel like my personal theology and my religious experience is all tangled together with with the way that it was shaped and formed when I was a teenager which I think is probably true for a lot of people. Um, but like that, that initial formation that had both the, the Christian nationalism and the, the beginning of the war on terror is also enmeshed with purity culture is also enmeshed with toxic church structures. Like it is also all tied up in a bow with like, some of the really profound early spiritual experiences that I had that were positive, like the, it's all together in this knot. And as soon as you pull really strongly on one thread of it, which is also really tied, I'm remembering tied to a lot of apocalypticism because this was when like the internet was becoming big and then there were wars and rumors of wars and there was Katrina and everybody was like, this is the book of revelation come to life. Like this is what I, I grew up on. And so as, as like the world is kind of repeating this cycle, it all, it all comes back together in this ball and, and thinking that I've dealt with one piece of it without having untangled all of it and dealt with all of it separately and rebuilt something in its place means that I just end back up in, in kind of a toxic place where I don't know, toxic is maybe the word, and in a really hurt place again where I don't really know how to deal with any of it. And I don't know that, I don't know that everybody else has that, or if, if that is even a common experience among other people anywhere in the world. But like, that's what I'm seeing about myself is that like, I can, I can think about this kind of all day long and kind of, I don't know, notice how Christian nationalism is functioning in the U S um, and maybe I just need to like be separate from the disappointment and the frustration and kind of find some place that where I can do work and where I can do something. Uh, because like it, it, this is also all wrapped up with a feeling of helplessness that you also that I felt a lot as a teenager in the post 9-11 era of like we're going to war and horrible things are happening around the world and maybe they're going to bring the draft back. And there are all of these disasters that I'm becoming aware of and all of it is out of my control because I'm a teenager. Um, yeah. I, I just feel like it's dragging, dredging up a lot of stuff um, on top of COVID and, and just kind yeah. of enduring through COVID. Yeah. Um, I bet you're not the only one to think to, to who's thinking through that and experiencing that. My my upbringing in the church is just a little different than yours, while right. while being very similar in some ways. But like, so like a lot of that I'm not I'm not struggling with. I know for me right now, this is one of the reasons I think that I've identified my turning towards need as like a theological category, mm -hmm. because and I and I've been reflecting on that a ton these past couple of days in particular, where I think I'm just so tired of, um ignoring how weak I feel, you know, like I, mm. there's probably a, a masculinity um, piece to that for sure. But like, I'm, you know, this past year in particular for everybody, you know, I've, I've just, I've just 
encountered the, the simple reality of my fragility, you know, my vulnerability, my, my need, my everything, you know, and, um, I'm just so scared all the time of yeah. everything, especially with Adrea, you know, and, and so I'm, I think that, I think a lot of our instincts are to ignore, to overcompensate, to get aggressive, to do these things. And I'm, and I'm so exhausted <laughs> by that, mm -hmm. that like for me, I'm, I'm now just, I'm now just diving headlong into weakness. Like this is my way of coping. I think is, is I'm now interested in theologies of need and vulnerability and weakness and fragility because it's just how I feel and it's where I'm at. And so like I have, it's why I have no time. It's honestly why I haven't even been looking at Biden at all. I don't know what Biden's doing ever. I'm, I'm exhausted and I have no, no interest or desire to know what he's doing, you know, mostly because Trump exhausted me for four years and, and I don't yeah. have, I don't have it in me. But also when I do look and see what he's doing, I just see that it's, it's the same sort of willful ignorance regarding our fragility, mm. you know, regarding our need, regarding our, the fact that gee, it doesn't matter. We're all dying. Yeah. Like, like existentially nihilistically, we're all walking bags of shit and blood and we're all going to die, whatever. But like, but like, I'm not even talking like that. Like guys, COVID's killing us. It just is. Yeah. You know? And, and, uh, the hurricane just murdered a bunch of us. <laughs> it, just, it just does. It's just what it's going to do. Bombings in, in Afghanistan killed American citizens and Afghani citizens. And we're all dying and hurt and in pain. And I guess we can ignore that. Um, but it's just going to lead to more screaming. Yeah. You know, it's going to lead to more unhinged takes on social media and in evangelical churches and in the public square. You know, it's going to lead to like, like, I really believe that. Like, why have you been seeing on Twitter some of these like mega church videos of like people freaking out, like in the middle of services and stuff? No. Well, there's just some different there's some different stories going on of, of different mega churches are falling apart. They They always fall apart, but. Mars Hill and some other some other podcasts and other things are, are making things a little more um, visual, visible. Mm. And people are people are losing their minds like people are screaming on these videos. It's the same thing with like all the anti-mask mandates, right? Like like all that stuff. Pe people are just absolutely losing their minds. Why yeah. is that? Well, there's a million reasons why that is. But I think one of them is just that this is how people try not to confront the fact that they're fragile, delicate little people you know i do i think that yeah. like i know me i know where i'm at i know that that i am sort of at least for the last several weeks i'm on the cusp of choking a guy out <laughs> because i'm so terrified that my kid is going to die from covid19 right just choking not just a person in particular but somebody like like somebody is is one you know, bumping into me at a supermarket away from getting his fist in my face, and, you know, like, like his fist and, you know, my face, my fist in his face. And, and it's purely because it's purely because I, 
I am confronted with the fact that my daughter is so fragile. She's not strong. She's just as weak as I am. You know, there's nothing that can be done about it. Um, I'm sorry for the rant. I'm sorry for the therapy session. But, like, this is only a problem. This is, it shouldn't be, it's only a problem. This reality is more of a problem in this country because of the stunted moral grammar that we're working with. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, like, we can't give up our power because then the whole thing falls apart. Just like, just like how COVID proves that the philosophical anthropology of human beings as choosing beings is false. You know, like, like it's a form of philosophical anthropology that, that human beings are defined by and, and, and are made autonomous by their ability to control totally their worlds. That's a, that's a philosophical move that, is, right. that is, forms the basis of economic systems and political systems. And COVID is proving that that philosophical system is false. Yet we're still going to maintain it. And so we will die. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the answer. Um, and we, we can't, we can't, that's the real apocalypticism of what's happening right now. I think. Like that's the real apocalypse. That's what's really being revealed. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think, yeah, th thanks for correcting me on that. Like, I think that's, I, I think that's what, that's the real apocalypse. The real apocalypse is what is being revealed is our, our moral systems, our views of ourselves as human beings, everything that we're working with is, is at least as Americans now, at least as North Americans, is just proven to be false every time. Every single time. They're, they're, yeah. they're, dead, they're, they're dead ideas. And, uh, but we need them to be true. <laughs> Switchfoot, the newest Switchfoot record has a song like that. You should definitely listen to the newest Switchfoot record, you, Joe, and listeners in general. It's a bangerang record. But uh, there's a song that they have on that record that's, that's called I Need You To Be Wrong. Hmm. Um, and it's sort of about that. I need you to be wrong. You know, if, 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 if you're right, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just know that feeling so well. I kind of don't even know to, need to know the context of the song. Like, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think, I think that you're right. I think kind of the, at the, at the heart of our moral systems, there is a problem. And, um, I, I, I also kind of despair of the idea that we'll fix it. And I, I think that's probably, um, like an actionable place where I can, I can, uh, invite my faith in to do something, to do some heavy lifting because like, I, I am almost completely to the place where I think that like, it's all irredeemable, right? Like mm -hmm. that we are not going to stop the changing climate, that we are not going to make any changes whatsoever and that we will just watch people drown over and over and over again until there's only the people who escaped to space, you know, like, I, I and I feel like we are just going to watch people die over and over and over. Like we're gonna hit seven hundred thousand COVID deaths by the end of December, and we we couldn't even imagine a hundred thousand. And here we are seven times that. And and like 
I just don't see anything changing. And I think that's probably part of the big fear with that comes comes back to the fact that like we're at the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 and I still see the same problems that were present at the time that we began the war on terror present in people's minds because we just haven't changed and we haven't learned. Um, and like it, it also feels that way with the Hurricane Ida that's hitting. It is Ida. Yeah. Yeah, it's Ida. That's, that's hitting the same place at the same time as Katrina. And like we did not learn the lessons that we needed to from that. And so people's lives are devastated. Uh, like I, I, and, and it will take a lot of faith formation in me to, to have me even hold on to the, the, the vague hope that like there is anything that we can do to help others around us and, and mitigate some of this pain because it does just feel like it is only going to get worse. It is never going to get better. Uh, and that's a scary place to be. And that is not uh, like, it, as you talked about being afraid and being afraid for Adria and, and all this stuff, like it, it, it's hard to be in a position to, of, of trying to make anything better unless you were already plugged into a community of people who are like, this is what I can control. This is what I can help. Um, it, and moving forward from there in a healthy way. Um, and even then, like, I feel like everybody's probably at a low. I just feel like I'm at a particularly low, low because, um, a, a community that I would have leaned on for much of my life was the church. And I have not gotten plugged back into a church community and, uh, and, and am in this moment as I, as I like feel a lot of this disappointment and panic and, and frustration and, uh, and apathy. Um, I don't think that like there is a church community worth plugging back into, which is probably not true. There's, there are places out there to find and, and people to continue to be in relationship with, but like, that is also a part of this kind of swirling thing is that like, I don't have any comfort from individual faith. And, and what do you do in the face of like the existential problems that we are facing as people right now, if not turn to lean on faith? Like, I just, I really feel the absence right now uh, because I really feel the absence of, of, um, a community that I feel like I can trust other than like the friend groups that I have built over the course of my life, which are of course a great community, but don't have that, the, the, the holiness that like a, a church would have, right? Like I don't have the ritual. I don't have like all of those things that are built up in a church service, but in a church service that I can also trust. Does any of that make sense? It does. It does make sense. It does make sense. It's more fragility. It's more loss, right? Mm, mm, and um, yeah. and that's okay. Like like I so listeners, at least for me, like I don't think I'm despairing over mm. this. Okay. Um, I think that's part of why I've embraced this this what I've embraced, right? Like I think I would despair if I kept trying to force it like back. You know, and if I kept trying to be optimistic, you know, or, or have this sort of, um, I'm sure everything will be fine kind of outlook, you know, or, or if I, or if like I turned to, uh, theologies of strength for comfort, you know what I mean? Like, mm. like, but because I haven't, because I've, I'm like, no, we are weak. 
We are. Like, I I feel good. It, it, it's not that I feel good, but like I feel uh, like I'm telling myself the truth, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is good. You know, I, I want to tell the truth, you know, and I want to, I think that's a good thing. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, I, I, I had to degrade a couple of, of folks. I had to grade my, my, the undergrads who I TA, their, their first piece, their first work. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, I have to go back and do a couple of more things with it, but like their assignment was very silly. It was a simple first assignment, like write a metaphor that describes your relationship to the new Testament. And, uh, and it was just uh, two sentences and a couple of them are very clever. Uh, some of them are very interesting and, and many of them are very boring. One of them <laughs> did not write a metaphor. And so I was like, that's not a metaphor. Sorry, buddy. You know, they were like, the New Testament is like a book. I'm like, no, it is a book. That's, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> literally a book. <laughs> it's literally a book. It's not like a book at all. Um, um, but like, there, one of the people, one of the students, I, I couldn't tell you the whole metaphor, but she called the New Testament fragile. Mm. And uh, and part of it is it's where I'm at, like it's where I'm at personally, and so I found it so intriguing, and I commented on it. I was like, "Wow, what an intriguing, what an intriguing word to describe the New Testament. It's fragile." Um, you know, and I, it's not like I, I didn't have, I can't have a dialogue with her. It was just a comment, but but I was like, "Keep keep thinking about that. Like, think more about that. That it's fragile, you know, like the rest of us." I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, as you keep on coming back to, to theologies of weakness, like that's, it, it does strike me as something that's really true. And, and I think, uh, um, it strikes me as true because it also feels like a lot of the theology that's done from the margins that says like, we are not in a position of power. And so then how do we move forward? And, and I think you move forward much more faithfully when you're on the margins than when you're in the seat of power. Yeah. Um, and I, I, part of me really hates that that's true. Um, just because uh, the people who are not in power so often end up victimized and hurt and abused. Um, and so I, like, you don't, part of me wants to like push back and say that, like, let's not encourage people to be, uh, without power. But I also think that, um, that there, I, that I'm reaching for a solution that is not the actual solution. Like reaching, I think that reaching for power. I mean, I think that's that is the whole point of the cross. Not the whole point, but a big, deep, important lesson of the cross is that reaching for power is not the way we redeem anything, and it's not the way that we save anything. And we see that over and over again in the Christian witness. And and like, and I was told stories of of people abdicating power over and over again, like stories of martyrs like at dc talk and jesus freaks and all this stuff was also big like <laughs> yep we we have both like on one hand like we're holding up these martyrs as people who gave everything and we even use that language with soldiers like that but but we miss the fact that like using using power instead of giving up power is is the lesson rather than just giving up everything you don't give up everything just to say that you have sacrificed it's always for the bettering of things um and and things don't get better the more authority and strength you throw at something 
Right. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If I can connect it to where we began, so at, at, by way of wrapping up, mm-hmm. like this is what makes even prophetic modes of American civil religion, you know, incorrect and maybe even evil from a Christian perspective. Like at the end of the day, it's American civil religion is a theology of power. It's yeah. about power and supremacy. In its prophetic modes, it's about extending power and supremacy to everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which, which, once again, is ambivalent and difficult, you know, you know, but like it's it's still there. Um, and in its priestly modes, it's about consolidating, you know, power and and authority and stuff like that to specific, you know, maybe specific groups or specific dimensions of of the nation. But this is what makes this is what makes it bad, you know, from that from that um, Christian perspective. There's always Christians are meant to be weak. I think um, weak in a particular way. You know, uh, this isn't me telling traditionally marginalized people that they should be happy that they're marginalized. I'm not. I'm not saying that. Right. But but. Power, from a Christian perspective, is always power with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's power. It, it it's power alongside of. You know, it's it's not, it's not power over. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not things like that. And so yeah. this is why Biden, um, and any president, but right now Biden, you know, quoting from the scripture and and casting some of these some of these military operations as being, you know, the will of God is, mm-hmm. uh, it's just evil. It's just, it's just simply evil. It's simply wrong from, from the Christian perspective. It's, it's, you know, if I, if I was, um, trying my best to be provocative and was talking to an only group of Christians, you know, I would call it, it's pagan. It's a mm. pagan notion. You know, it's, it's a, it's not a neo-pagan. I'm not. I'm not trying to make a comment about Wiccans. You know, I'm. <laughs> it's. It's a. It's a classically pagan notion. That's that tells us that uh, uh, the reason why the emperor is all powerful is because Zeus is all powerful, and that's what it means to be a god. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. incorrect. That's false every single time. Um. Yeah. 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 And. Uh... And maybe this, uh, what we've teased out here with the the wanting to turn it, the the need to turn away from strength, also goes back to our discomfort with locking the church doors after the service. It does, you know, because mm-hmm. we are we are trying to we are relying on the strength of that deadbolt, but it makes us feel stronger. Um, when really, like it, worship time out of all times should be the time that we are opening ourselves up to to weakness, to vulnerability, to all that. Um, do all that God can fill in us rather than what we are trying to boldly do for God out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. God. Agreed. Oh, Jesus. What a world. What a <laughs> what world. What a world. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know where to go from there, but but I'm glad we talked this through. Sorry, listeners, this is a it's a downer of an episode, but I feel like I feel like things were unearthed. I feel good about it. Yeah, I do too. I do too. 
Um, let me wrap it up. Go for it. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor? is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shumwolf, performed by Joe Shumwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, strength is made perfect in weakness. You have a real, uh, uh, hello, this is Dr. Fraser Crane vibe with the mic right now. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs>